Hello everyone and welcome to Nearly Numinous. My name is Rachel and today Jacqueline, Steph and I will be completing our first venture into the world of fandom as religion where we will be discussing everything Harry Potter. disclaimer, I'm hoping to bring to the table more general knowledge about fandoms and fan culture, as I've never read the Harry Potter series in its entirety, though I have seen all the movies multiple times and I grew up with it like my other co-hosts here. I was a huge Harry Potter nerd, so I actually, um, when I was younger, I didn't find much value in reading. Um, I d- <laughs> Which is, like, quite surprising. Yeah, says the PhD student. (laughs) I also, like, just so you know, I won a lot of competitions for, like, I Love to Read Month. So it was kind of, like, this this big change that happened from, like, grade one to grade two. um, Because I remember walking through the grocery store with my mom and being like, no, mom, I don't need to read because all of the cans have pictures on them. So if I want to buy cans at the grocery store, I just, like, I don't need to read. And my mom's like... I, like, I don't know what to say to that. It's good logic. (laughs) Flawless. And then at some point I discovered Harry Potter and it was just like a switch. So like Harry Potter was very much like my first sort of like reading. And so they were um, very big in my formation as a person. Um, Yeah. Yeah. See, I, even as a kid, I was a huge nerd. Uh, I think I started reading Harry Potter when I was in kindergarten, which was like way too young to be reading Harry (laughs) Potter. It was a little bit over my head from what I remember. Like, I think that I read it just because I I felt like I needed to. Um, I have older siblings and it was always like trying to prove myself against my older siblings. So I definitely, I read all of the books probably like as soon as they came out. Uh, I'm also a huge nerd in that I can't read books over time it gets read in one night or it does not get read. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I've i done my fair share of reading of Harry Potter. I also must say, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later about our uh, maybe issues with J.K. Rowling, but I love her writing. <laughs> her books that she did under the, is it Robert Galbraith pseudonym? Yeah, uh, the Strike Cormoran series so well done and I hate that I love them (laughs) well just thinking about what what you were saying about it was it being over your head um I was talking to someone recently um who was maybe rereading it or something and and just like the amount of like British words and stuff that are that are in the Harry Potter series Mm, that like it was very much over my head and so I feel like like reading a book with a lot of words that I didn't know was actually like challenging in a good way and that like I I was okay with reading challenging books after that because I was kind of used to it. So I feel like we all at least at some point like I know Rachel you said you didn't really read the books but uh gasp. <laughs> I know I really really wish I read them growing up because I feel like I missed out a lot. Yeah, but, but I don't know, like, the movies were still well done. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, there's there's obviously a culture that's kind of expanded and just come from this whole book series that goes way beyond just reading books. So I feel like, you know, there's people that are part of the Harry Potter fandom that 
probably don't really care about the books, you know? Like, it, of course, it's the starting off point, but, you know, you get to all the, like, quizzes about what's your Patronus and what house are you from, and it just goes way beyond just reading books, you know? Speaking of, what house are you guys in? Uh, you see, this is, this is a big... Uh... Yeah, this has been a big struggle for me. Um, I've been, yeah. So when I was younger, I was very convinced that I would have been a Ravenclaw. But then I was sorted into Hufflepuff by Pottermore and I was just outraged. But then I realized, you know what, actually, maybe I am a Hufflepuff. And so I took it again just to like check. And then I was a Ravenclaw. And so I don't really like the Pottermore quizzes. That's a whole separate discussion. But I like to think of myself um, as a Huffleclaw, so more leading to a Hufflepuff now. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess if I had to choose one, I would be Hufflepuff because they, the common room is pretty great and they like plants. I like plants, so yeah. Um, so Hufflepuff, but Huffleclaw. What about you, Rachel? I'm kind of like Jacqueline. Uh, in that I've kind of oscillated between being placed in different houses, but I kind of throughout my life have had like a 25% chance of getting in each house. But I think I'm settling down in my old age because my recent tests have been pretty firmly either Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw. So I'm kind of leaning towards a Huffleclaw sort of deal too. Yeah, I feel very left out of this party. Why? What are you? <laughs> the coolest place to be is Huffleclaw. Well, so I feel like all the tests that I take usually put me at the top in Gryffindor, mm. but I don't personally feel like I connect with Gryffindor. You know, I think that I'm definitely more Ravenclaw with maybe like a sprinkling of Slytherin. You know? Fair enough. So we've already made it quite obvious that Harry Potter and the entire, it's a, it's a culture around Harry Potter. It's beyond just reading some books, uh, you know. So people have their houses, they go look for their Patronuses, and it's, you know, what we kind of then call a fandom, right? It's just a group of people going above and beyond being interested in the same topic. And so maybe we can kind of dive into why we're even talking about this in the first place and why we see something like Harry Potter or any fandom for that matter. It could be, you know, sports fandom or Star Trek or whatever, and why we dive so deep into this and why it's even relevant to us on this podcast. Yeah, so there's um, there's some religious study scholars that like to look at fandoms kind of as their own religious groups or maybe as new religious movements, that sort of thing. And so not necessarily saying that they're religious um, in nature, but that they might fit into some of the different theories of religion that have been developed over time, which I, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But to start with, first I'll give a de definition of fandom. So um, this is the definition from Wikipedia. A fandom is a subculture composed of fans characterized by a feeling of empathy and camaraderie with others who share a common interest. Fans typically are interested in even minor details of the objects of their fandom and spend a significant portion of their time and energy involved with their interest, often as a part of a social network with particular practices. This is what differentiates fanish, in quotations, fandom-affiliated fans from those with only a casual interest. So what is involved in fandom? One of the more vis visible aspects of fandom is conventions, 
where you might see hundreds or thousands of attendees gather together to celebrate one or multiple topics, pieces of media, characters, and more. And many attendees often dress up in cosplay, meaning costume play, of their favorite characters. I'm sure we've all seen some pictures of great cosplay online over the years. Zines, fan fiction, and fan art are some of the other most popular ways of participating in fandom and have been given a bigger platform with easier accessibility over the years via the internet. To my knowledge, fandom and fan culture began gaining popularity with The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, when some fans would write fan fiction to expand upon the Sherlock Holmes universe, its characters, and its cases. Uh, Star Trek, the original series, is another early but still popular fandom with Uh, which obviously has many offshoots in the form of movies, shows, and books too, as well as a diverse array of fans. And another popular one is anime and manga, which have also gained huge fandoms over the years, not only in Japan, but across the world. So you haven't brought in my favorite fandom yet, uh, which is the Marvel movies? Mm, Yes. Yeah. Big fan. If I was going to identify with one single fandom, it would be Marvel. (laughs) The Marvel fandom is huge. And what was it? Captain America versus Iron Man was Civil War. War. That was one of the instances when, like, fandom kind of reached into the mainstream. That was huge. Mm -hmm. No, and I think it's... uh, We'll probably come back to this a little bit more later, but... There's something that, you know, so my big tradition and the reason I consider myself part of the Marvel fandom. So I'm not somebody who goes to conventions or writes fan fiction. Uh, However, midnight opening night of almost every single Marvel movie that has come out since like I think Iron Man 2, I have been at the premiere. Because to me, going to a movie theater and watching this movie with everybody else that's as big of a fan as you there's a certain shared emotional experience that it's just unmatchable, you know? And I think that's where much of our discussion will kind of come into later on of like that kind of shared experience, right? Well, just to bring that back to Harry Potter, and this might be a little bit of a controversial topic, but um, I was in London when The Cursed Child came out. I believe I was actually there on the opening night. I could be wrong, but it was very much like we were told, like, don't, don't tell anybody the plot, like, because the book, the playbook wasn't out yet and it was just this really cool feeling of like being all together people were dressed up and just like being that atmosphere together it was pretty cool yeah yeah and fandom is usually seen as outside or more extreme than mainstream culture and mainstream fans which is generally true but in many cases fandom culture has hugely influenced the mainstream culture uh including new media and literature that comes out, and sometimes even the source material itself, such as uh, with Sherlock Holmes's death. So mainstream fan fiction you guys may have heard of um, includes the tale of King Arthur and all subsequent Arthurian legends, uh, Paradise Lost, The Divine Comedy, The Three Musketeers, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, obviously, (laughs) uh, the Mortal Instruments series, and the really popular one recently, Fifty Shades of Grey. So it just goes to show you that, especially when it comes to, like, fan fiction, this stuff that starts off as sort of niche and in specifically fan culture can expand to 
more mainstream and sort of becomes disconnected from the fandom itself sometimes. Would you say that Paradise Lost is just fan fiction of the Bible? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so maybe we should now talk about, because I think from the basic discussion and definition of fandoms that we've already been given, it doesn't necessarily make it a religious phenomenon, right? So I think there's something to be discussed here about, you know, how does this actually fit into the greater conversation of religion, you know? Um, And something that I like to maybe bring into the discussion is uh, Emile Durkheim. So uh, I know we try not to get super theoretical on this uh, podcast, but I feel like for this discussion, it's good to give you an idea of Durkheim and Durkheim's theory of collective effervescence, um, which... I love that term. Anyway, (laughs) so the idea of collective effervescence is based on Durkheim's theory of religion, uh, and it's kind of the core element of it. So uh, Emile Durkheim was a French sociologist uh, who published work kind of at the turn of the 20th century. So his theories of religion were based on his work studying other anthropological data about groups, uh, which he often referred to as quote-unquote tribes, um, especially throughout Australia, which I find interesting he didn't actually go and st- like do any anthropological research of his own. He just used everybody else's work. Which was very common with early religious studies scholars, I oh, think. Yeah, for sure. So he made observations that there was a, a very big distinction in the world between what we consider sacred and what we consider profane. So the sacred is basically anything that we kind of infuse with religious ideals. So that can be physical objects like the Bible, it can be going to church, it can, you know, anything within that realm, it can be meditation. Um, And then the profane is kind of the other end of that where it's anything that we do not put religious meaning to. So it can be, you know, my water bottle that is next to me or my computer. Um, And so Durkheim noticed that the profane became sacred when communities would join together and perform rituals together. So it would take any common gathering of people and kind of give it this otherworldly quality. So he saw that this ritual and performing these things together in unison would create a sense of belonging infused with the numinous. Uh, So this is then linked to an idea that there's a certain quote-unquote electricity that is released when these groups come together and it leads participants to a certain collective emotion Um, and he also kind of refers to this as a certain delirium. So Durkheim believes that this creates a group sense of being in contact with a divine energy, and this is where our current understanding religion comes from. And uh, just a bit of a side story, uh, there's this really interesting study that was done a little while back uh, looking at, like using Durkheim's framework, looking at the firewalking ceremony in Greece and how these participants would have the same heartbeat and heart rate while doing this activity together so it was kind of like the scientific understanding of like what Durkheim was talking about where you participate in this ritual together and you're doing this very crazy thing that was actually it's actually quite dangerous I think and everyone had the exact same breathing patterns heart rate etc so I think that's kind of a really interesting link to that. So from Durkheim's perspective, the next part of this kind of collective effervescence is that then this experience is projected onto an external symbol. So for many religions, this takes its form in a divine figure like a god, 
Uh, but for some fandoms, it can be a projection into the divine qualities of a character, so kind of making Harry Potter a savior-like figure, uh, or even making him an extension of an external figure of God. So this doesn't always necessarily need to be a, a figure or a person, or etc. So Durkheim recognized that something like the Four Noble Truths from Buddhism would function as this external sacred product. So in the realm of fandoms, the text itself can also be considered the sacred object. And I think we're going to get a little bit more into talking about texts as being sacred later on. And I think if we kind of use this theory of religion, it's really easy to see how things like fandom can fall into the religious definition. Because you get these gatherings at conventions or going to the movies, um, and it kind of creates this mass ritual where everyone participates in the same thing, and they're going to get this like sacred and religious feeling from it. So obviously there's other definitions and understandings of religions that maybe do not necessarily agree with Durkheim's position or kind of Durkheim's boundaries that uh, he sets on it. But I think there's also some other traits of religion that we'll see throughout this. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about like charity and sacred texts and things like that. Yeah, and to bring that around to Harry Potter, um, I mean, surely everybody knows what and who Harry Potter is by now, uh, but if you don't, it goes without saying that we might be discussing some spoilers in this show. Um, but going back to some of the religious themes that Steph touched upon, you can definitely see elements of um, avid followers and fans, idolization of characters, communal gatherings like at conventions and such, and uh, obviously the main storyline in Harry Potter involves themes of good versus evil. Um, so if we're coming at religion from a Durkheimian perspective, which places a lot of emphasis on community, then it seems obvious that Harry Potter has inspired religious-like devotion and followership over the years in many ways, such as um, through conventions, like I said, uh, in-group, out-group dynamics with Hogwarts houses, uniforms like school robes and house colors, which show a more visible aspect of community, and of course, the creation and consumption of fan fiction and art theories and memes, which can be so easily shared and understood. Yeah, and I think something as well, just even outside of kind of mirrored themes that you can see as Harry Potter being a religious community. There's also the whole debate that surrounded the Harry Potter books in the first place. So there was a ton of groups that came out, specifically Christian groups, that were very anti-Harry Potter when the books were being published. There was tons of protests, everything, um, because obviously Harry Potter contains a ton of magic and themes of magic. So there were protests that basically said that they thought that if their children were reading Harry Potter, they were going to join the occult, um, logically. But I think it's interesting that there is also the other side of it where there is a ton of Christians that then tried to do Christian readings of Harry Potter. So um, Greg Garrett's one author that wrote a book called One Fine Potion, The Literary Magic of Harry Potter. And he said in an interview that he believed that Rowling's 4,100-page epic was the best and most powerful contemporary retelling of the gospel narrative. So I think it's quite interesting that then there's also this divide about, you know, how religions perceive these fandoms on their own and how they interact with these fandoms. I remember this being an issue when I was a kid. Um, As I've talked about before on this show, I went to Catholic school all my life. 
And when I was in grade one, when I was about six, I remember that this issue of Harry Potter being about, you know, like witchcraft and uh, devil stuff came up. (laughs) Devil stuff. (laughs) Well, like uh, the first book that... uh, that controversy where it was like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone versus like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I don't really remember the, um, I don't really remember the conclusion to the talks about this at my school because I was six, but um, I remember that this was a big issue that even I and my other students in my class could uh, heard about it. Well, it's interesting, too, that we make these divides between fantasy worlds because we could look at something like Tolkien, right? And The Lord of the Rings, I would say, has just as as much ideas of magic and stuff promoted in it. But because Tolkien was such an outspoken Christian, then people kind of gave it the okay. Whereas when these the Harry Potter books were published, people were less... Uh, J.K. Rowling was less vocal about, you know, her own religious background um i think she later came out trying to justify herself and say that she was christian and you know these books were actually you know contained her christian ideals but you know that might have also just been like an after the fact i think it also has to do with the fact that tolkien's world is a different world than this one um whereas uh rowling's like the harry potter universe is like is on earth right now you know like interacting with in theory our historical events currently um and so i i think there's maybe a little bit of a fear that children maybe won't be able to tell the difference or i don't i don't i don't know Uh, i'm not sure how to phrase that but yeah i think though that it's obvious that those kind of things have maybe calmed down a bit uh because you don't hear the same protests these days right you know, I'm sure there's still very, very Christian parents who won't let their kids read Harry Potter, but I think it's a little less pervasive. Obviously, the world has not ended as a result of Harry Potter, so I think we've been doing fine. <laughs> I think, though, that I would almost say that the Harry Potter fandom has done more good than harm, because uh, you even look at how a lot of people that are part of the Harry Potter fandom really dive into this idea of, you know, the Dumbledore's army thing. You know, I think, Jacqueline, you uh, you were talking about the Harry Potter Alliance and that kind of idea of giving back and charity and how these kind of groups function within that fandom, you know? Yeah, so the Harry Potter Alliance, um, it displays a lot of traits that maybe other tr- religious traditions have with this emphasis of charity and service work. But um, the Harry Potter Alliance specifically looks at that through um, the story of Harry Potter. So I, I found some, some nice quotes from the Harry Potter Alliance website just to give our listeners a good idea about what the Harry Potter Alliance is. So the Harry Potter Alliance turns fans into heroes. We're changing the world by making activism accessible through the power of story. Since 2005, we've engaged millions of fans through our work for equality, human rights, and literacy. So in a different place, they continue. We use the power of story and popular culture to make activism accessible and sustainable. Through experiential training and real-life campaigns, we develop compassionate, skillful leaders who learn to approach our world's problems with joy, creativity, and commitment to equity. So the Harry Potter Alliance is divided into uh, chapters, which I really like because, you know, 
It's a book. <laughs> uh, so there's different chapters around the world. So you can join a chapter um, of a local group and um, see kind of like what sort of ways they're getting involved in in the sort of issues that Harry Potter Alliance gets involved in. Um, one of the main um, campaigns of Harry Potter Alliance is called Accio Books, um, which is uh, which is an annual book donating campaign uh, to promote literacy. There's also an online uh, wizard activist school, and so you can actually like enroll in these sort of uh, courses and get certificates. Um, it's totally free. There's a bunch of modules I was looking. There's like Social Justice 101, Advocacy and Allyship, and yeah, you, you can get a whole bunch of different certificates. So something that I find really interesting about Harry Potter Alliance is that it's very dedicated to this idea of what house you're part of. So just like we were kind of joking around earlier about like how we each identify with different houses, their whole army is based on, they'll, they'll do actions based on the specific traits of each house. So I guess right now they're, they're doing a challenge about Hufflepuff. So they're looking for you to summon your inner Hufflepuff to find immigrant-led and immigrant-serving organizations and fight for immigrant justice rights in your own neighborhood. And I think, you know, there's there's not anything explicitly spiritual or religious about this, but it, it's that sense of kind of fighting evil and that it's the common good, especially the idea of working together and using your gifts. You know, I think that approaching it almost like use your inner Hufflepuff is that same kind of rhetoric that you see in a lot of Christian self-help books, um, as well as just in Christianity in general, where people say, you know, use your gifts. Um you know, God has blessed you with these things and now you need to summon those traits within you and seek the common good. But also, um, there's kind of this challenge. Like, I haven't kept up with um, this this campaign, but from what I can tell, it sounds like they choose an issue and they kind of rotate between the houses so there, there'd be different challenges per house. But um, there's also this challenge of, though you may be Hufflepuff, like summon also your inner Gryffindor maybe like to try this other challenge. So so it kind of breaks apart the houses in a way too. Um, so it doesn't, like the houses sometimes it can feel a little bit divisive um, in the traits in a way that seems a little bit unnecessary. Uh, it, it's kind of one of my pet peeves of like, well, they're 11. Why are we dividing them into these traits that don't even necessarily know who they are yet? <laughs> But I really like how, uh, yeah, the Harry Potter Alliance through this, like, kind of brings all the houses together and kind of tries to draw on these different traits that everybody has or can have and can, like, develop and challenges them to do these different challenges according to that. So we've talked about the religious nature maybe of fandoms, that sort of thing, but um, we'd also like to talk about religions at Hogwarts. So in a tweet in 2014, there was a fan who asked Rowling if there were any Jewish people at Hogwarts because this person was Jewish. And so Rowling responded that, in fact, there was at least one Jewish person at Hogwarts, uh, Anthony Goldstein. You but, know he's Jewish because yeah. his last name is Goldstein. <laughs> Thanks, Goldstein. J.K. Rowling. Uh, he's in Ravenclaw, apparently, but I don't think he ever actually shows up in the books. Apparently, there is, like, this document where Rowling wrote a whole bunch of names of potential students, um, and Goldstein was on the list. But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he doesn't really show up anywhere else, at least not significantly, which I think also says something. But... 
to add on to that tweet, she also continued to say to everyone asking about their religion slash belief slash non-belief system, if it is represented at Hogwarts, the only people I never imagined there were Wiccans. That doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't make sense to me I feel like that was her trying to justify herself to the Christian community. Mm. Yeah, I know that's what some other people online are saying too. Um, like some of the news articles that were covering it, that it was just kind of to appease to appease the conservative Christians, which I doesn't make sense to me also just because like they're not reading your books. So you saying that like Wiccans don't go to Hogwarts like isn't going to make them read your books. Though. Also, honey, <laughs> you have enough money. You don't need more people buying your books. I think you're okay. Um, and so that kind of made me start thinking, well, this is something I've thought about for a while, but especially with Rowling saying um, there are no Wiccans at Hogwarts, it makes me wonder, well, where does where does the magic come from? Because, you know, there are these whole, like, whole systems of witchcraft, like paganism, like Wicca, and if she's rejecting all of them, then, like, well, where does this magic supposedly come from? Um yeah, I was wondering what, what you folks thought about that. Um, just about, like, the cosmology of Rowling's books. And I don't really care about if if she wrote something on Pottermore after the fact. Because, like, if it's... For me, this is something we can talk about a little bit later. But, like, if it's not in the books, then... It's not canon. It's maybe a little less canon. Uh, we could talk about that a little bit later. But I understand everyone's need to kind of infuse their own belief systems, morals, and ideologies into something like this because they want to connect with it more, right? And I think that just by human nature, that's what we want to do. But really, I feel like it's very unnecessary to try to give the characters religious beliefs. And I don't understand why she needed to come out and say, you know, oh, I've thought everybody except Wiccans. That just to me seems very unnecessary. Uh, And I think we as society just need to decide that it doesn't matter what our fantasy characters believe religiously, (laughs) you know? I think especially because obviously she wasn't writing this for a Christian audience or a religious audience. She was writing this as a fantasy world. And, you know, I think it's very important that you can still recognize that there's morals and ideologies and you know the good versus evil debate and it's a very you know all books teach you something but it doesn't necessarily need it need to be ground in religion and i think just by like bringing that debate into it it's unnecessarily divisive on the other hand i can see why some people uh who belong to like minority and marginalized religious groups would want to see themselves inside the story when they don't get to see themselves in like any other story Mm-hmm. I could see that, yeah. I just think that, is that then almost like tokenizing after the fact of like, obviously J.K. Rowling didn't write the books positively showing minorities. Um, you know, everything that she did was after the fact of just trying to like kind of re-justify herself. Well, if you look at like the LGBTQ community, you know, she, she says, um, I think also like around the same time in, the, in a tweet, like in a Twitter discussion about like I hope that Hogwarts would be a place that would be that would feel safe for the LGBTQ community. Um, That's very ironic of her to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then if you think about it too, 
all of the couples that we know of in Hogwarts are, like, I'm pretty sure they're all, like... Oh, they're heteronormative, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like, I don't think there's any, there's no same-sex couple that yeah. I can think of. So it's like, okay, like, you can say that, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems well, very disingenuous. And this may be an entirely ignorant comment, um, so feel free to call me on it, but... Is it maybe then better to have more of a blank slate than trying to pigeonhole characters? So, like, you know, if I were to call up J.K. Rowling and say, hey, I'm ex-religion and I feel like I was not represented, but then alternatively no religion is represented in the actual books, Mm. is it better to have the blank slate for then me to project my own beliefs onto it rather than... JK Rowling creating religions for her characters. You know, it's that kind of argument between like representation versus I guess like a blank slate, right? That you can infuse your own things onto. Well, and that's kind of it reminds me of the whole discussion about like why Bella was such a relatable character in the Twilight series was because like she she didn't really have much of a personality and so that other like readers could could read themselves into Bella um yeah so the blank slate thing makes sense to me of just like leaving it open for readers but then also yeah I don't know what Rachel you have something to say I can see where the blank slate would come in handy like with religious identity but when you're talking about um sexuality or gender Mm -hmm. when you leave things up to the blank slate that's when um heterosexuality and cisgender is seen as the norm the default so if you're leaving things up to a blank slate then what you tend to be doing is just defaulting to a straight and cis Mm -hmm. no and I think that's an entirely different conversation when you bring gender sexuality race into it than just from a religious standpoint for sure especially because as much as it's possible to read into a character and decide that they are maybe actually transgender because they maybe have a blank slate and there's no defining qualities that says they're not, that's not necessarily the automatic jump. You're right. Yeah. But I think from a religious standpoint, I would say that the automatic perception is non-religious if they're not given a religion at least in, like, the age of 2020, right? Yeah, that definitely wouldn't have been the case a while ago, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of my reading of it is it seems, um, like, the worldview seems quite atheistic or at least agnostic in that, like, there is this idea of good and evil, but it's it's not intrinsic to anything. It's more like it's a choice. Like, Voldemort chooses to be, like, to, to do these awful things. Um and there is there is still humanity, like we see humanity in him through Tom Riddle, especially in the second book. Well, so I think this kind of brings up the question to me about, you know, Harry Potter, as we've said, exists beyond the world that J.K. Rowling has created, right? And then do you guys think that we've kind of given her now this authority to kind of be the god of her world right so we ask these questions about okay well what religion is there what sexuality was this character and it's kind of leaving her as this 
God for this community that's grown beyond what she created, right? And so, especially when we, I, you know, obviously we can't get through this conversation without talking about her questionable, questionable viewpoints about uh, transgender folks, right? And I think by giving her this kind of like godlike quality that she has control over this community can be almost detrimental. I think that's our default. Um, I think that's what we tend to do when uh, we talk about um, creators of canon. We usually kind of tend to give them like the godlike status, like whatever they say goes. But then when it comes to uh, J.K. Rowling's like recent comments about trans folks, I think now we're starting to question that like uh what is canon what isn't canon why are we giving her so much control over the original text like this well yeah and it it reminds me um like with J.R.R. Tolkien um he was like a mastermind world maker like he planned everything out he knew like economies of different places he like he knew everything and I feel like since Tolkien especially there's been this pressure on authors who create new worlds to kind of have everything planned out to the same extent and I think that Rowling as well as a lot of her fans have kind of fancied Rowling as being equivalent to Tolkien in this world creation but like she's not she hasn't she actually hasn't planned these things out um in the in the way in the way that she would like to think that she has so by retroactively making these changes to make herself look a little bit more woke like ah it's just it gets really complicated because yeah i don't know like tolkien for example like what if he had created harry potter he would have known exactly how many jewish people were at hogwarts he would have known the implications of world war ii going on at Hogwarts, he would have known like the whole wizarding economy and how it worked. Like he would have had every figure, everything figured out. And I'm not even convinced that uh, Rowling really thought about like the logistics of magic or like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not convinced by Rowling at this point. I think though, then that also brings the question of obviously the wizarding world would change as the world changes, right? So when Rowling wrote this in the 90s and early 2000s, the world was a certain place, right? And I think there is something to say about the fact that I think she does have the authority to then come and say, well, the wizarding world today would maybe look different than it used to be, you know? But I think on that front, you're right. There is a certain element of her trying to just seem like, oh, don't worry, I'm cool, I'm hip, you know? Yeah, and that was especially in kind of the 2012 to 2014 range where Pottermore was coming out, and I think, like, she was very, very active on Twitter, and, and like, uh, fans were sending her, your, like, tweets every day to ask her these questions, and she was responding. So it was this really cool, like, interaction with this kind of godlike figure, but... Um, yeah, it makes me a little bit skeptical, especially because Pottermore was just coming out, if that was not just a large part of a campaign for her. Mm-hmm. I think an extension of that is, as well, if we give her this godlike authority, then we see her almost as this divine figure not to be challenged or questioned, right? And I think that that's really shaken up everybody because so many people who maybe are trans 
if not at the very least support you know trans folks that now are kind of at this impasse where they've they've placed this divine quality on jk rowling and they don't feel like they can challenge her or question her and it's kind of this position that people are now in of like what well what do we do now right do we go and burn all of our harry potter books do we stop supporting the harry potter franchise do we stop identifying with this movement or is there a middle ground right because i think you know realistically like a a divine figure you know if for you know there's there's thousands millions of people that have gone hey i don't like that god said this in the bible he doesn't agree with my viewpoints and lifestyle therefore i need to throw out christianity altogether uh and so you know if we kind of place jk rowling as this divine figure do do we then have to treat it like that right or can we treat it like an element of just pop culture where you can take or leave whatever you want you don't have to shape your whole ideology based off of what this one person says and does People are tending to, like, uh, pick and choose stuff from the Bible more recently, though. So I think that still uh, shows that um, the way we view uh, the Harry Potter world is kind of like um, the way we interact with the Harry Potter world is a lot of the way we, like, interact with uh, religions and spiritualities. Like, even if we don't agree with what Rowling says... um, we don't necessarily have to throw at everything. We can just choose to remember the books and the movies fondly, uh, stay in love with the characters, in love with the story, and kind of separate the author from all of that too. Yeah, so that that's a really great point. Like for me, for example, like Harry Potter was quite significant growing up and so um i can imagine like other people who um like while they were growing up maybe like harry potter was a safe place that they could kind of retreat to when maybe things weren't going so well at school that sort of thing and yeah just just to feel just to feel betrayed by the person who created this world that became your own it makes me wonder also like at what point does the author get to keep control of their story or at what point does it actually belong to the readers you know who have like incorporated this in their lives it has become a huge part of who they they've grown up to be and how they see the world and at at what point is is a story actually more like belong to the readers than to the author that's a very good question i think that i mean it's a lot of what we're trying to figure out today when we're talking about fandom, which goes so beyond the original texts that we're talking about, um, when it becomes more about uh, the fans themselves and the community that they build rather than, you know, the original stuff. But I've been, I've seen um, on Twitter, like, trans folks, some of them saying, like, Harry Potter was so important to me, and now that um, I've been seeing Rowling saying these things online, like, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, I cannot connect to this story. I cannot read it in the same way. And then other trans folks have been able to say, like, um, I can I can disconnect her and her comments about, you know, myself and my identity from the story um, because, like, I want to stay with the Harry Potter world. And I think that 
I need to disconnect the stuff she's saying from it to be able to keep enjoying it. Uh, So we've kind of touched on this a few times already, you know, and even just like you were just talking about, Rachel, the fact that there's some people that kind of pick and choose things from the Bible that we kind of take as character building and we'll read and we'll take to heart versus the stuff that I think we've just kind of decided to you know not not talk about you know for example and I think that something that I find really interesting about that is this idea that we read the Bible in a very specific way you know um, as well as how yoga teachers study when they're getting their yoga teacher training but they they study the Vedic text but they study very specific parts of it and I think that comes down to how we connect with texts and you know I've even been hearing the like spiritual but not religious movement has been prizing this idea of how we view any text so you can take any book and it's not about the text itself having divine qualities it's more about how we read that text and there's a very specific purpose of doing that and that's taking these passages and learning more from them and taking them to heart and how we then interact with these texts and I think that there's been a really interesting project that has been taken on by a couple of people doing this with Harry Potter specifically. Yeah, so there's this podcast that I've been listening to lately. It's called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And um, yeah, so uh, the name kind of in a way suggests that maybe um, like we're comparing Harry Potter to a different sacred text, but that's actually not what the the podcast is about. It's about uh, sacred text reading as a methodology. So yeah, just as... uh, just as Steph was saying about reading kind of a more secular uh, book um, as if it was maybe sacred. And so just first a little bit about the co-hosts of this show. Um, so one of the co-hosts, his name is Casper Turkile. He's from the UK. He moved to the US to study. Uh, he got his master's degree in divinity and public policy from Harvard. And uh, what's interesting is he actually grew up atheist, and I believe he only really became Christian when he was studying his master's, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think he might have gone into divinity as an atheist. So uh, he remains uh, what's called a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard Divinity School. And uh, yeah, the other co-host they met at Harvard, um, Vanessa Zoltan, uh, is Jewish. She is atheist and is a humanist chaplain. She got her MDiv at Harvard and she studied English literature in her BA and um, she wrote about the idea about like Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte being a sacred text. So um, she talks about since she herself is not religious, she sometimes missed having a text to return to for comfort. So some people may do with the Quran or Bible. Um, she realized at some point though that that's exactly what she was doing with Jane Eyre so like maybe she was feeling sad maybe she I don't know she would just keep returning to Jane Eyre and would um, get different things from it each time so that's kind of that's kind of the background of where um, this idea of uh, reading Harry Potter as a sacred text uh, came from for this podcast. So when we approach a book like Harry Potter or really anything for that matter. I've seen people do this with poetry, with essays, with books, both fiction and nonfiction. There, there's a certain, like you were saying, Jacqueline, methodology of how you approach these books in this kind of sacred text manner. And so the podcast says that 
in order to do this, they mean treating the text with three specific methods, I guess. So the first one is to trust the text. So when they talk about trusting the text, they believe that it's not just a, a book for entertainment's purposes and that if they take it seriously, they can actually glean some sort of insight or knowledge from it. And they believe that they say a guiding principle is that the more time we give to the text, the more blessings it has to give to us. The next kind of method they put towards this is they refer to as rigor and ritual. So this is the idea that we read slowly, we read repetitively, and we give our full attention to elements of the book. So this kind of means that although the text might not be considered sacred just by the writing of it, by reading it in this sort of way, we're giving it the time and attention that kind of infuses the sacred quality to it. And then the third method that they put towards reading a text as sacred is through reading it in community. So kind of like we were talking about before with Durkheim's collective effervescence, it's the idea of coming together and doing something in a group together it can actually infuse it with this divine experience and it can kind of turn something that may have been considered profane before into this sacred text. And so this, this, kind, this podcast is their way of kind of doing this in community and bringing more people into this conversation. So um, each episode of the podcast kind of has the same layout. So they've been going through from the, the beginning of the Harry Potter series, they go chapter by chapter. And so they've picked uh, a different theme. So maybe like love or betrayal or something like that. And so each episode begins with one of the co-hosts sharing a story, um, like a personal story that relates to this theme. And um, then they go into... Uh, the 30 second recap. So it's kind of like this competition where um, just because listeners might not have read the book recently. So to to give them a little bit of a recap of um, what was going on. So it's a competition. They each do it. And it's really funny because um, Casper is really, really bad at it. Um, and yeah, so then after that, then they, then they start talking about the different events in the chapter and how they relate to the theme. Now, the part where it um, gets to kind of more like viewing the book as a sacred text is um, they rotate through different spiritual practices um, for viewing different sections or uh, quotes from these chapters that they're focusing on. And so most of, most of these spiritual practices do end up being from the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition just um, because they the co-hosts um, feel that since they're from those backgrounds then they can they can authentically uh, do these practices and claim them as their own um they do like they sometimes have guests on where they uh, the guests maybe leads them in a different spiritual practice but they they feel uncomfortable with doing like a different traditions practice that they don't feel like they they can have personal claim to so um they have a bunch that they kind of rotate through yeah all of these are um, practices that have been used particularly in Christianity and Judaism, to study the Bible and the Torah. And um, yeah, and after they've done that, then they also, they close the episode. Well, first they would have voicemails um, if, if there was anyone who had called in with kind of their insights um, from previous chapters, but then they would end with a blessing. So um, they would choose a character from the chapter and offer a sort of encouragement to that character for what they're kind of going through in that specific situation in the chapter. And so what's kind of cool is Vanessa 
made a, a commitment early on that she would always bless women. And she always has, but sometimes there's like like one woman in the chapter or something like, because um, the cast is obviously like, because there's Ron, Harry and Hermione very often. And so there's like very few women sometimes. And so it's kind of a cool commitment to just think about like the women and literature and yeah. So rather than promoting Rowling to a god status, viewing Harry Potter as a sacred text actually allows readers to separate the story from the author. So there are no discussions of the author's intention and no discussions of Rowling's clarifications or, uh, as I would call them, retroactive canon adjustments. (laughs) This allows readers to engage with the stories and characters as something unto themselves, perhaps as they did when they read them as a child. And I think this is especially important due to how someone of Rowling's controversial statements have made people feel betrayed by her and, by extension, her universe. So this can be super damaging, especially if these were places where people retreated to, say, as they were kids in middle school. And this podcast, as well as the Harry Potter Alliance that we talked about earlier, centers the story of Harry Potter on the fan community, which allows it to remain a safe space for people. So just kind of on that note, I was wondering if you folks had um, any stories about the role that Harry Potter or broadly fantasy books has had in your life as you were growing up. Well, I think I I had already kind of touched upon the, the Marvel Universe, but I think that that because it became so prominent when I was in my early teens, that's when I really latched onto it. Um, I think as much as I connected with Harry Potter, I got, I think, a little too into it when I was like six, seven, eight. And although those are very formative years, I don't have a ton of memories of those years. So I'm sure that Harry Potter played like a very strong role in my life then. But I find like when people kind of talk about like fandoms and fantasy and like connecting with like a community like that, I really think about Marvel. Uh, And I think though a lot of it has to do with this fact that especially how the women are portrayed in Marvel Universe, I've always really respected because I have always been somebody who's into strength and the idea of like both physical and emotional strength when it comes to like the female identity. And I've I've really appreciated, you know, like I, I think I was brought to tears in the last Marvel movie, like the last Avengers movie, when it was the scene of just like the pan of all the women like getting ready to fight together and I like it's just so powerful (laughs) but I think on top of it 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 was a really big connecting thing for me and my friends you know we would talk about like theories in the universe and you know project like what we thought should happen Uh, and I think that's a big part of it right is you know trying to put like your own theories and your own ideas into this series. Um, So, I mean, even going back on the fact that, like, when I was young and was into Harry Potter, I maybe hadn't had those kind of, like, need for predictions and putting my own ideas into the story as much as, you know, when the Marvel Universe came out, it was very much like, you know, I'm not a fan fiction writer, but it's that idea, right, of, like, letting this world exist with your own ideas, you know? And outside just fantasy books just more like general I've definitely made lots of connections and friend like even really good friends over the years uh connecting with people just through fandom 
and like I still talk to some people every day that I've met online through fandom so I think it's it's had this huge significant impact on my life my experience with the internet how I connect to new media and literature and how I connect to people online that's a good point it reminds me uh, when I was a camp counselor and uh, I was quite quite introverted and so I tended to uh, be more aware of kind of like the other like the introverted campers that would be in my cabin or in my different groups and so I would always kind of like like try to you know try to get them to open up um see if I could use my introversion skills uh to help with that and very often I found was that um if I would talk about if I would just mention uh Harry Potter or maybe Doctor Who uh it would it it would just open this whole world of then um, they would just get literally. so excited yeah literally <laughs> it's bigger on the inside <laughs> I was also a big Doctor Who fan <laughs> yeah I don't know there's something about like Harry Potter and Doctor Who that there's a certain aesthetic that you can kind of like pick up on a person of like I think I think there would be someone who liked Doctor Who and so I just mm-hmm. remember there's a particular camper that I was like so Doctor Who and she just like was beaming and was just telling me about all this stuff and yeah it's just like you know like a minute before she had just been like so so kind of like off by herself and that sort of thing and so I like um I like being able to use these sort of like nerdy fandoms Mm -hmm. to kind of connect with with people well and you were saying before it's almost that idea of a safe space right and I think especially as I'm not super introverted, but I think at my core, I'm an introvert where I do find more peace by just going and diving into my interests, right? And I think that's the same thing, right? Of like, it's that safe space where you can go home, you're exhausted, but you know, you can pick up that book, you can watch that TV show and your projections of the world and what you wish the world were like are going to unfold onto the screen for you or into the pages, right? So I think for sure, definitely, I think that's also why you see a lot more introverts being part of fandoms than you do, like, extroverts. And it's, like, it's really good for small talk because in a way it is small talk, but it's not, like, small talk, like, how's the weather that most introverts hate. Um, (laughs) I'm just like, why are you talking to me about the weather? Um, But, yeah, it's just, like, it's very serious small talk, you know, because it's, like, well, like, who's your favorite doctor? Or, like, you know, like, do you like uh, movie Jenny or book Jenny? Like, these are serious Mm -hmm. discussions. But it's also, like, how you get to know people. Because, like, you know, if you said that, you know, Tennant was your favorite doctor, then, oh, my gosh, I know everything about you now. (laughs) You know, like, if you say that, like, Hermione was your favorite character, if you say Luna was your favorite character, I immediately know so much more about you now, you know? It's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the dating profile question for nerds. <laughs> I think that's how uh, Hogwarts houses function a lot. Like, what Hogwarts house are you? And then, that's true. well, you think that immediately you know a lot about people. But like we were talking about earlier, it's not so straightforward. It's not so black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like it kind of serves the same thing. Like for me, it always opens a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, um, yeah, just because it was this whole like, struggle between am I Ravenclaw am I Hufflepuff what am I and who am I yeah and like so much angst towards like Pottermore quiz and then I'd be ranting as I am right now (laughs) and and, you know like it opens this whole discussion (laughs) 
So if this is the first time you're tuning into Nearly Numinous, uh, don't forget that you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. Uh, but new update is that we finally finished our website. So uh, you guys should all go check it out. It's nearlynuminous.ca because uh, we're all Canadians and we like to really prove that we're Canadians, you know. And on there, you can find all of our past episodes, including transcripts. So if you are more of a reader than a, a listener, that's an option for you. But we're also going to try to post some uh, little fun tidbits about us and our interests. So check check it out and keep checking back. And possibly soon some bios about our pets. So you can see like 20 plus pictures of all of them. It'll be a good time. Thank you.